I just want to say thanks to everyone for coming out. I didn't set this up. It was actually Kim Hawk, so big shout out to Kim Hawk. He's always doing this stuff. Thank you to the roasters for taking time and coming out. This is really just a conversation we're trying to have so that we get a little bit more insight on what perspective the roasters have when going into choosing coffees or roasting, all that. So we'll kind of start off with Instagram questions, and then we'll go into audience questions. All right, so we'll start with first place coffee they asked i'd love to hear more about everyone's personal story and journey into roasting so whoever wants to start that off you want to introduce everybody where you're from and whatnot yeah <laughs> actually well i think everyone kind of knows everyone but sure you guys want to introduce yourselves yeah randy from xanadu coffee i'm a spencer from peixoto coffee i'm matt from moxie coffee mark from grind time coffee curtis from Presta coffee uh, Blair from Presta Coffee. Yep. All the way from Tucson, right? Cool. So, yeah. If you guys want to start off with just saying your personal story and your journey into roasting. All right. Everyone's looking at me. So, I, mine was just, like I'm sure a lot of you guys, I was a manager at a coffee shop, and I love coffee, and I graduated with a degree, but I had a hard time finding a job, and I was kind of floating around for a bit, and I went and spent spent some time with a roaster that was supplying coffee beans to the cart I was working at and just like instantly fell in love and I was decided like this is what I want to do I'm just gonna pursue it because I feel like I'm being led to it and if it works out then I'll know it was meant to be and I'm not really sure if that's entirely how it went down but it felt very natural to me at the time I put up my mom co-signed on a loan to help me buy my first roaster I put up my car that I owned I was like an auto loan at the bank and I'm sort of just kind of like dove in. This is 2008, so there wasn't a lot of resources for learning how to roast, unfortunately, but I was shown a, a great kindness by a couple other roasters in Phoenix who came over and like sort of took me under their wing and showed me a lot of, answered a lot of questions I had. So yeah, I feel like I sort of owe that to the community just because I was really, I was, I had, I was just rudderless. I had no idea what I was doing. The lady that sold me the roaster gave me a cardboard box with like 14 steps on like written on sharpie like start roaster hit gas you know drop beans wait for it to crack twice dump it out it was kind of a disaster so and i knew i was wrong it was weird i was like i this coffee is not great but i had no idea how to make it any better so big shout out to my mentors and it was kind of a, a harrowing experience but after a while you kind of figure out what you're doing that's awesome i started out uh, kind of a different probably different pathway no coffee experience at all started getting into brewing at home through an online forum kind of got me excited about specialty coffee in general started buying brewers and grinders and all that stuff as you do as a as a home coffee person really liked that aspect of it and figured why don't i start roasting too so i bought a little home roaster started buying coffees from sweet maria's back in the day i just bought like everything uh, I, I possibly could and tried to yeah I just tried to buy I, I wanted to try every flavor profile there was and Sweet Maria's did a good job of kind of outlining all the different you know kinds of coffees where they came from and it was all just super fascinating to me so wait uh, what year was this this was 2014 and where did you go for like coffee roasting information the internet was ever had everything there yeah yeah <laughs> wherever i could find it at that time it was it was pretty sparse i was kind of winging it just going off of people i think sweet maria's kind of gives you like a a little, a little bit of like this is where you should you know, like i don't know what they What's call the, it full city and all that kind of stuff it was but i didn't i didn't have it at that time yeah, it doesn't really 
Sorry. No. There is a Scott Rao book about roasting, but I don't think it, it's more for production. It anyways. is, yeah. Yeah, I, I bought that later on once I started at, at Peixoto. But yeah, so anyways, I started roasting a lot at home during that time and trying just as much stuff as I could. Obviously with not a, not a lot of good direction other than just like roast level from Sweet Maria's. And then I started, at that point I wasn't in coffee, but I got really intrigued by it, by all this, and then decided I should probably find a job in, in coffee because I loved it so much. And uh, Peixoto was, was just about to open. It was 2014 and they opened in January of 2015. And I saw a, a post on Craigslist. I was living in, in Peoria and they were in Chandler. So it was quite a trek to start, but the, the story and everything really intrigued me. Having their own family farm, having, you know, doing all the roasting, doing specialty coffee was really important to me. Their family being from Brazil, I actually, my mom and grandfather were born in Brazil as well. So it just had this weird kind of like connection to me. So yeah, I started working there and I told them right away, I was like, I want to roast here one day. And uh, I think eight months in or so, they started to let me roast a little bit. And after I bugged Jeff, the owner, enough times that he, he let me kind of get into that. And yeah, ever since I've been roasting for, I don't know, eight years now. And uh, yeah, I'm doing head roaster now and green buyer. I got a couple of awesome assistants under me. so. It's been kind of the, the journey through coffee. But yeah, learning originally, learning from Rayo's book and Rob Poo's books were the two books you could buy at that time. And I think Rayo was the only book when I first started and I read that and then Rob Poo's book really informed me. I think that one a lot more than, well, Scott Rayo's book's great for setting up consistency within a roastery, but it doesn't really give you a good idea of how to create good coffees. And then I think Rob Poo's book really teaches you how to create good coffees and, and profile coffees. So. Those were kind of my two big resources at that point. And then just trial and error for a long time, as I think all, all of us kind of do. So that's kind of my story there. I'm Matt from Moxie Coffee. I have a very similar kind of story to you. I bought a, a used vintage hot air popper off of eBay for like 25 bucks and plugged it in and threw some coffee in there. I learned that technique from Sweet Maria's. So I would go on sweetmaria's.com. You can still go there today and buy coffee from them. Green in small little so I just buy coffees and and uh, put a half cup in, turn it on, and just wait till it started popping and turn it off and dump them out. Started doing that in my dorm room in like 2011 or something, and definitely set off quite a few smoke alarms. Yeah, I, I don't know. Fell in love with the sort of the different varietals, different processes. Bought a home espresso machine. Yeah, I just kind of went down that whole train. 2014, moved to Denver, got a job in a random specialty shop and started roasting there. That's really where I got a lot of my education, I think, in coffee and in roasting specifically. Got a different job in coffee and they sent me to Roasters Guild at the SCA in Milwaukee. And that was a, that was just an experience where I got to roast on like 10 different machines and just sort of listen and hear from different people from all over the world and how they roast and length of roast and just open my mind to like, wow, you could roast in eight minutes or oh, you could roast in 14 minutes and like you could create a good coffee either way. So yeah, and, and also just sort of affirmed a lot of what I knew about coffee roasting and just affirmed that like the coffees that I was making were pretty good. Yeah, that's, that's pretty much how I got started in coffee roasting. Moved to Arizona in 2016, so I've been here for six years and then started Moxie in 2019 and technically opened in 2021. So we've been open about a year. Well, that's, that's pretty cool. So I feel like I'm kind of unique up here. I had zero experience in coffee before I started a coffee shop. It was kind of weird. 
the automotive business was where I was at. I worked on cars, I fixed them, I, I tuned cars, just a lot of different stuff in that, that business. And I, I was just so sick of it and just needed a huge life change. And uh, we started our trailer we, about five years ago. And we, were, we started as a multi-roaster just from shops around town. When we moved into our, our brick and mortar, I felt it was more necessary to grow our own brand at that point rather than somebody else's. It was really important to me to do that. So with the help of Kim Hawk, I ended up buying a little roaster at home and started doing that. I'd, I'd spent a few months just playing around and I said, you know what, let's just do it. And that's where we're at now. I'm still roasting on two really small roasters to supply our shop with. Hopefully here pretty soon we'll have a, a bigger roaster all set up and just continue to do what we're doing. The brick and mortar is three years. So yeah, we just, we just hit that last month. Bullets. I leave with bullets. Little, little electric roasters. I feel like my story is a little unique here, and uh, I had zero coffee experience when I went into this. It's true. I mean, yeah, it's it's weird how I was thrown into this world. My only experience was, I mean, coffee in Europe was through bike racing years. I raced over in Europe, and when I was back here, I had kids. Kids are kind of growing up, moving on. I jumped into a little space in the hospital. It was a coffee cart. I went the opposite way. I actually opened up a cafe first and was a coffee cart. That cart itself was bulletproof. I think you can run it down a couple steps and it would, wouldn't break. But from there, I saw a lot of, once I opened up the coffee cart, I bought a bunch of uh, coffee roasters in the area and just saw a lot of inconsistencies in the roast and, and the buying. And really my first roasting experience was in the oven on a tray. But I did that a couple of times. I was like, this is not working. So. Over summer vacations, I, I had friends, uh, Handlebar, Aaron from Handlebar Roasters. I helped kind of sit in with him and learn through him. XO Coffee, before they opened up at night, we went sneak down inside and like learn about roasting. Even I'd go to Par Portland a couple of times and in Heart Coffee, I'd kind of sit in and in the background and just watch them and talk to them. But it's really just experiences with other people that were roasting at the time. And you talk about like zero information. I mean, they're at 2000, there was zero coffee information uh, what I couldn't find on the internet but by 14 there was like a little explosion of SE or specialty coffee and definitely there was a scene really starting to take off I mean handsome coffee those guys blew it up and everyone else outside of it blew it up but really I mean starting as a cafe first and then moving into roasting I probably would have done it the opposite way if I knew I would have started roasting first and understanding sourcing and roasting on top of that because it was hard to manage a shop and then trying to understand what you were buying and what you were roasting and how much and I mean you feel that now I'm sure right I mean you did coffee I did well barista yeah the reason why way into getting a roaster yeah so you did roaster and then kept shop. the opposite way so okay I actually did it like the right order right <laughs> <laughs> but that's it I'm, I'm really I'm I'm what nine, eight, eight years, nine years into roasting now. So, and it was a whirlwind. He just threw myself in it. I bought a bunch of bags of coffee and just burned the heck out of them, and then backed off and kept backing off until you get backed off so much to where you, you might as well eat grass. But on top of that, you you go back into it, and it's all understanding your profiles of where you want to be personally. I wanted to do something different that was not in our city, and that was just back off as much as I can before it didn't make sense. So yeah, this is where I'm at. Right now I'm roasting a Joper 30 kilo. I've had it since day one, 
everything has been bomb proof. So anything else? Is that it? What's up? So I've actually been a cafe manager for about 10 years now throughout different cafes. And I never really thought that I would be a roaster. I've competed in Brewer's Cup and judged and really got a lot of my palate development through that. So I could tell Curtis was on the right track, but I needed to fine tune some things when I got to Presta. I'm just kidding. No, no shade. But, you know, an opportunity opened up and Curtis took a chance on me and let me do all the roasting. And I found that I really liked it. I like having that kind of tactile experience with the coffee, all the smells and sounds that go along with roasting. I like being part of, you know, the green buying and kind of having that kind of voice to curate our shelf a little bit. But also, you know, I feel really privileged to be able to have the experience of handling really expensive, really nice coffees. So I feel like out of everyone here, I mean, I get to I get to play coffee, it feels like. You know, I'm, I'm not on the hook for the money part. Thanks, Curtis. I just get to make really beautiful coffee and, and share it and share the story with people and the staff. So it's awesome. Yeah. That's also a really scary part. It's a lot of money. That's a lot of money, especially if you're getting some nicer stuff. Yeah. Big risk, big reward. For sure. Hopefully. Just you like Spencer, it's like just waste all the money and just like yeah. whatever he feels yeah. like without thinking about it. <laughs> Claire and I have the good positions here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know, now it's, it's a little harder. All right. So another question from Instagram from Steep Deprived. I wonder who that is. How do you or your company ensure that what you taste on the cupping table translates properly into the final intended product? That is brewed at the bar by baristas or by home brewers. Whoever wants to jump in. Can I start the other way this time? Yeah. I don't think everybody has to answer. Just whoever wants to answer. Oh. Yeah. yeah. I'm pretty. I'm pretty lucky because even though I started roasting about four years ago, I got into servicing and fixing espresso machines. So that's actually more my day to day now. So most of my time I spend at our shops fixing their machines, calibrating them, and a lot of that is like tasting and seeing like what their experience is. So I'm very fortunate. I get to be hands-on with both the roasting and the actual like implementation of it. But having a shop helps because when we opened our shop, it also gave me another avenue of getting seven people to give me feedback on our product and not just like being our roaster, like roasting in a the warehouse and trying to figure out like what is happening after it leaves our table. So I'm very fortunate in that in that respect. Yeah, I have a similar, I think a similar experience there. So we do you know, we do QC all the time for all our coffee. And then we try to also create recipes at the warehouse with similar equipment as the coffee shop has. So we try to align as much as possible between the coffee shop and our warehouse. So we're kind of talking the same language, develop recipes for new coffees as we get them, and then send the recipes to the shop and then hopefully get communication back and forth about how the coffees are tasting. And then we, we try to make weekly visits to the coffee shop to then taste, you know, the new coffees, how, how they're being brewed, which is always a little bit different than the coffee, than the warehouse, no matter how hard you try. Have they ever found a better recipe? Sometimes, yeah, for sure. I would say they're, that's their, you know, expertise there. I pretend to know how to brew coffee. They're definitely doing that every day. So, and yeah, sometimes it's, it's, it's different in a, in a not maybe better, but just different in another good way, which is always kind of surprising when you get that. But I think that's that's the best you can do if you're separated from your coffee shop in some way is yeah, just try to, the communications are super important. Going there, tasting the products as often as possible, super important. Tasting at the warehouse over and over and building recipes and doing all that to the best of your ability. I, I think you have to do that as much as possible. So that's what the job's, the job's all about. 
Yeah, I don't have a lot to add on that. I, From the cupping table to brewing, I feel like I don't have the time I wish I had to maybe go into that as much, being a new shop and stuff. But I think mostly just tasting it a lot and then tasting it in the shop via espresso and pour over and drip and everything. I'm usually just tasting them a lot. But I don't try to dictate a lot of how our staff brews our coffee or extracts our coffee. I have a pretty... I'm pretty loosey-goosey on that, actually. I feel like if the extraction's good in terms of flavors that are coming out, like, I could care less. If it tastes great and it's extracted well, like, I'm pretty happy about it. So I wouldn't say I'm, like, really just a stickler for, hey, I tasted blackberries on the cupping table. Better taste like blackberries. (laughs) You know, if I'm tasting peaches, you're doing something wrong. It's more just, like, uh, I'm pretty open. I think that, I think, in my experience, a well-developed roast is going to taste pretty dang good if it's extracted well. So, yeah. Generally, I'm, I'm actually not all that connected from the cupping table to the brew as much as maybe others are, but I cup a lot. I just, yeah, I've had, I just feel like I've had so many experiences where tasting notes and things that I taste there are not as prominent in the brew itself, especially with like, I don't know, just a lot of washed Ethiopian coffees and stuff like that. We've talked about that before and yeah. But generally, I think that if, if it's developed to where I kind of like it and feel like the coffee is good, then I think it'll come out well. I'm looking less for notes and more for extraction. I don't really have anything to add. I'm just going to echo these three guys here. So, sorry. Oh, hi. No, I mean, it's, it's all really the same. I mean, it, the hardest part now is actually pricing of green that's coming in now. Everything's going absurd. So, it's, it's really... I mean, these guys are all right in what they say. It's from cupping to roast to cupping. It's 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 a variable. The coffee, the individual coffee itself, is a variable. Each month, it tends to change on you, and it gets drier. Roast a little faster. You have to calm things down. We're always cupping. We're always trying them, but there there's other big problems on on the table than just that. Cool. Another question is, how do you go about choosing a coffee lineup for your cafe? Is it based on having the most variety or more what's available and what's sounding interesting? So for us, I just, I'd like to have showcase just a few regions around the world at a time. And I just buy based on, you know, I'll get a few samples in and taste, you know, you know how many Colombias can I get today or this week or this month or whatever, how many Ethiopians. And we just kind of go through it. And as a team, we cup them together and decide what we're going to like. And again, just a few regions from around the world. I always like to have an Ethiopian. That's an easy one for people to get into if they're not into specialty. So it's nice to have that. And then just, again, as a team, we, we cup everything and try it all out and bring what we all enjoy. I think it's pretty easy for us. Anyone else have anything to add? Yeah, so I would add to that. That's obvious. You know, bring in what's good. That's important. But I think also for, for us, it's a lot to do with harvest times during the year that dictate a lot of what you're bringing in. So as, you know, places start to harvest and new coffee start to land, you want to usually try to be buying from the times or from the places that will be in season at any given point. So through the year, like second half of the year, you get a lot of Central American coffees and African coffees. In the first part of the year, which is a little harder, you get kind of uh, some South American coffees and yeah, really just South America, Colombia, Ecuador, Peru uh, are fresh around that time. Some, some Indonesian coffees kind of come in the middle of the year. So you're always kind of shifting your buying around, trying to get make sure you're getting fresh coffees, I think is important. And then 
for things that you're bringing in, you're usually working with you know importers that you really trust and 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 want to build relationships with. So I think that's that's also really important. If you can't be on the ground all the time, origin trip, buying coffees, actually doing that kind of work, relying on importers that you know you know you you know and can trust, and looking through their lineups and working with them closely, I think also dictates a little bit about what what you're getting because you can only really buy for whatever they're they're grabbing on any uh, given origin. So that's that dictates a lot. And then also just general flavor profiles. Always trying to keep a kind of diverse lineup of, you know, different different coffees for different people in their, their coffee journey, I think is, is really important. So approachable coffees on one end that are easygoing and then more and more exotic on the other side of things. And then exotic with different kind of flavor profiles. So, you know, you might have some coffees that are floral, some coffees that are really fruity, some coffees that are trying to have a, a wide range of those kind of things for for any given person to kind of find something they like it at any time. I think is important. So those are kind of the extra things, I think. Yeah, I'll just echo a little bit of what Spencer said. I think the only difference is I think the older I get, the more it's important, like as far as like the sourcing of it and how like I really into programs that work with you know, women and women farmers and sourcing. And for me, just personally, if I'm going to be competitive in this field, I have to feel good about where my coffee's coming from. So that's just a very important to me. I'm going to tack on a question. Onto that, since we were talking about harvest season and things like that, how do you guys feel about pass crop just in general? Then as coffee price grows and there are a ton more sitting just green that aren't getting so, do you guys look at it as an opportunity to buy coffee? And is it important or not important? And if you do buy pass crop, how do you go at storing and roasting it? Anybody that buys pass crop. Get in there, buddy. That's a heavy question. Yeah, I can, I can take a little bit with pass crop coffees. I mean, there's not- Could you explain what pass crop coffee yeah. is? For, so, like, or Spencer. Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I got, yeah, whichever. Yeah, pass crop's just usually I would say kind of definition would be like pass a year off harvest is kind of what people usually say is past crop. But I mean, past crop it can also mean old coffee. So there's that, that's two kind of distinctions you'll have. Pa like past a year can be really good coffee. And I think that, you know, there should be a, a market for that kind of coffee. I mean, you should be, I mean, if you can find something that's over a year that's still tasting good, I don't think there's any reason not to buy it, but you do take on a lot more risk. And I think that the risk is, is really what you have to worry about anytime you're buying anything past a year or past crop. If it's still tasting good when you buy it, you still have to, you know, put out the coffee. You have to create the website. You have to make the labels. You have to profile that coffee. And it could be, you know, a month or so before you've even put out that coffee. And in that time before, in between those, the time you bought it and when it actually goes out, you could that coffee could be old or taste taste old, which is for in, in green coffee use, just ends up tasting papery or uh, like a wet bag or something like that. So you can, which yeah, it's not doesn't taste very good <laughs> as you can imagine. So it, there's nothing wrong with past grub, but the, you do take on more risk if you're going for it. But yeah, if there's coffees, I mean, if it's stored really well and it's even some coffees now are being vacuum sealed and all that, I mean, coffees can go for a long time if they've been in that kind of condition. So if you define it by over a year, then there's a there's a lot of good options there, but if I don't think I would ever buy something that's already tasting old if you define it by tasting old already, unless you're gonna do something that's pretty highly developed or something like that, where you're not gonna you're not really trying to highlight the coffee's nuances. You're just you just need a coffee that you know 
fits a roast kind of flavor. And that's that's maybe a good application for those kind of coffees for me. Yeah, I we don't bring in those currently to Moxie, but in a previous roaster that I roasted at where we would do darker to pretty pretty dark roasted coffee. Yeah, we would use, for instance, a good example would be like Shamrock Foods. So we did some total roasting for Shamrock Foods. You get some really, really dark roasted coffees that are also pre-ground and put in those little hotel packets. Past crop coffee, that's a great use, <laughs> right? Really not gonna tell the difference. So, but I think generally most people here are roasting like a little more on the lighter end of the roasting spectrum in, in the world of specialty coffee. So I, I generally just have found most coffees for me after a year, and I mean, unless they're super dynamic, let's say like a 90 point coffee, the 90 point coffee is not going to be around in a year. So it might lose a point or two over the course of that year in, in its score and in its quality. But at a 90 point coffee, I mean, roasters, like anybody who's sitting up here, are scooping those up as fast as they can and they're gone before they even land, more or less get to be a year sitting around. So yeah, so I, I would take that into consideration. Our, our purchasing has been mostly trying to find something that would excite people and that would sort of cause a stir in somebody if they were to drink it. So like part of our philosophy around, buy, or part of my, I'm the only green buyer, but part of, my, part of my philosophy around buying green coffee is trying to find coffees that are more rare and uncommon to have, just because I feel like for me, one of the most exciting things about coffee in general is just having something that I'm like, dang, I've never tasted that before. And I remember that being a moment where I kind of fell in love with coffee. So I think that can be done with, you know, just great coffees, good coffees, but we also try to purchase if we can, maybe carry one or two like geisha or natural geisha coffees at a time if we can, something that far more expensive that might serve somebody who's a real coffee nerd and is like, I really want to just try unique stuff. It's sort of like craft anything, craft spirits, craft beer, like you have, you know, beer nerds who will pay $14 for a glass of beer. And it's like, yeah, of course I'm going to, I'm going to try it. It's a limited release. Same thing in coffee. And I think that's a good thing in general to, or I've found it to be a good thing to keep people excited about the craft of coffee and keep sort of the exploration of coffee alive for myself mostly and for people in general. It really, it's just an exploration for myself, like to keep things really exciting and dynamic because I love that. But And outside of that, we started off this last year with a lot of anaerobic and carbonic maceration processed coffees and we probably overdid it a little bit. Pre-purchased all of that before we opened and brought in a huge pallet of exotic coffees and <laughs> I still have some of them. So overbought a little on those and, and I would say our philosophy is sort of corrected a little bit in that we're trying to carry a, a little bit more washed terroir focused coffees that are a little bit more they, they represent the region and and where the coffee was grown and trying to educate people on while also keeping around a natural and maybe a few experimental process coffees like a carbonic maceration process coffee too because I think if I think it creates a fun conversation about what's possible in coffee and also highlights a bit of what's possible from the producers element where you know they have a pretty incredible craft of being able to produce these highly dynamic anaerobic or or uh, I don't know just experimental process coffees that are really fun to try and they put a lot of work and effort into them so to showcase them I think is really cool and it elevates the work that they do and the skills that they have to showcase those occasionally so yeah I just had a few things to add because I feel like we all kind of came out of the pandemic with a little too much coffee you know I feel like 
early 2021 producers were like, hey, it's going quick now. You know, everyone's opening back up. New roasters are coming. You know, the good stuff is gone. There was that urgency and everyone kind of like bought up all these anything that was good. Like, oh, my gosh, that's so good. Let me buy it. You know, let me commit. And so I think 2021, even to 2022, I've, everyone I've talked to, they're like, we're long on coffee. We have all this coffee and it's just aging. And so I think, you know, I think it just depends on if it's still tasting good and you can get, you know, fair market value for it. Like, sure. Like, showcase it you know if it's kind of dropping off or you have to like allocate it to something that's a little bit more forgiving maybe it's cold brew maybe it's a blend maybe it's a wholesale count you know i think there's all these avenues to you know you're not going to throw away the coffee right and just be smart about how you're allocating it and also you know i think it's awesome if you're buying a past crop coffee and you're like this still tastes amazing and i'm not going to be scared at the harvest date you know if you think about it there was all these roasters doing, you know, frozen coffee, freezing, like amazing coffee. Like maybe, maybe that'll come back around, I guess, and in trend and, you know. Have you guys tried the rehydrating green coffee technique? I've not. Explain that to us. I mean, I tried it, it didn't work. <laughs> it was just some random blog post and it was kind of popular maybe a year or two ago. I was hoping you um, there. <laughs> what do you know about it? Some guy had an idea of like putting green coffee in a bucket and adding water and then like tumbling it for like 24 hours before you roasted it to and just upping the water activity while it roasts and then might do some stuff. But we ran some trial runs and I didn't no no conclusion. Did it change the flavor at all? It just got really hard to roast because there's all this water in there. So like the it's just really like if you're gonna try and compare apples to apples and compare the profiles like when one has twice as much water content, it's extremely difficult to make it roast the same as the other one. So it's just, I don't know, it's, like, it's very annoying. We would need an entire like tumbling coffee system to, to integrate it. Just uh, throw water on top of the roaster and spin <laughs> it up in there? But I think that was like an argument for it was that if you have dried out coffees, you could rehydrate them somewhat and revitalize them a bit, but yeah, it didn't work for me. Cool, we'll do one more from Instagram. What do you like the most and the least about roasting? The actual roasting, <laughs> that would be the answer to both maybe, but for sure the least, I mean, production roasting is, yeah, you're sweaty. It's just kind of gross, yeah. It can I, be very I, lonely. It's, yeah. it's, yeah, it can be extremely boring. Very lonely. Especially in your, I, is that like broadly just the roasting in general? Yeah, I, I like experimenting with different coffees, profiles. We just got a new sample roaster, so trying coffees at different different roast degrees, different speeds. I think right now at this moment, I think probably just my favorite part right now is just the sourcing of the coffee and developing relationships and discovering new relationships and new producers. We had a grower from Columbia randomly walk in like six months ago and hand me some coffees in these really ugly looking bags. And I was like, oh, these would be terrible. And we just recently bought Washed Geisha Lot from her and her husband. And it's just them two and the coffee is insane. It's incredible. So I think I'm just mostly enthused by that right now, and we're gonna start traveling to Origin and trying to source some really good stuff. So that's probably my, my most favorite part. Yeah, I would echo that. I mean, I think figuring out the, uh, the puzzle of the new coffee when you get it in, along with finding an, a, an interesting coffee to bring in in the first place are the two huge draws to the, to the craft. Because there is some, there's some fun parts about production on kind of tricky days. It's actually, I think, more fun when the conditions are worse and you have to kind of figure out that day's problems and roast good coffee still. But 
yeah, production can definitely get pretty mundane when things are going well. <laughs> you just kind of, the coffee's just doing what it's supposed to do and you're kind of sitting there and, and just monitoring the profiles and making sure they're, they're tracking. There is a, there's probably a point when you're getting into production roasting where it, it can be a lot of fun just figuring out all the different things that can happen. And I think there's a, there's probably like a year or so, a couple years of, of fun and in that production time where just you know everything's new you figure all the things out but once you kind of have a good feel for you know the things that can happen and that that can that part can get probably the most boring out of all of them but yeah sourcing creating relationships with producers really growing with those producers too so once you've got one coffee and you start to develop a relationship just kind of seeing them evolve and their craft and then you getting to work with them to produce an amazing product together because it's kind of a joint thing between you, them, and then the barista that's going to be serving it or the people at home. I think that kind of combination is amazing about <coughs> roasting. You're really like a translator of flavor in a way. So whatever the producer's doing can't really be showcased without you. And that's kind of a, a cool position to be in. It's an undrinkable product until you've kind of done something, but you really are just trying to highlight what they've done. You're I, think, I don't think as a roaster you're really adding anything. You're just trying not to take away from what they've done there. And I think that's a really cool position because you're really, you're really gonna make it or break it for that producer and how they get perceived by the world. So I think that's, that's a really cool spot. Yeah, other than that, I, there's not much I, I dislike, but it, it can get mundane, and, but there's a lot of really good highlights in there as well. What don't you like? I definitely don't like dealing with the chaff. It just like gets in my skin and like, <laughs> I hate it. And yeah. then I think, I think saying goodbye to coffees, I think I get really yeah. sad about. Sure. Like if it's the last roast. But have you had a tap wire yet? Not yet. That's a great smell. I asked Curtis about? recently, he like <laughs> left and I was like, hey, just, uh, is there a fire extinguisher here? Because I had never seen one. We had one. That's good. You have to. But yeah, the chaff, I, I think like other than just like the physical, you know, lifting some of those bags, like I'm kind of small, I'm not super strong. So that kind of really sit well, but saying goodbye to coffees, I think is one of the saddest things. Cause I'm like, this was great. We all loved it, but there is no more, you know, <laughs> the last batch is always like, oh. it's hard to convey. Like, you know, this is the last one, you know, get it while you can, but. Cool. For me, it's the, the midsection of the roast, especially the, this time of the night. We, we've, since COVID we've adapted a late night roasting program and we still haven't gone off that just cause the roaster is in the cafe still. But it's that midsection of the roast where this time of the night I just tend to zonk off a little bit <laughs> until the roaster buzzes at me and wakes me back up again. But I think the worst thing is right now is we have a roastery, or our, our warehouse is in a different location than the cafe, and I'm, I'm pulling bags from that. And it's, I try to get people on board for coffee CrossFit, <laughs> but no one wants to do it. <laughs> yeah, I guess the half bags are too small these days but yeah that's it i still love roasting cool i think or mark do you have anything i was just going to say generally the cleanup is just the worst part yeah. just overall yeah fair enough i think we're going to open up questions to the audience so whoever has a question go ahead and ask these guys yeah. when you're roasting what determine what kind of roast you go for when you're looking at a bean do you roast at a light medium and a dark for each bean to figure out which one you like the most and then or do you typically stick to medium for everything or dark for certain beans or like 
I'm glad you asked, Donovan. No, Kim asked me to do this, and for a little bit of homework, we're developing a profile right now. So anyone that wants to, I did bring a crate with three different bags with three different roasts. And then if you go to our website, I actually wrote up a blog on like the process that we that went, went along with, along with like a flow chart. It's very cool looking. But for the coffees, you know, part of what I, I put up on the blog is like, you can take metrics, you can take the moisture, the density, you can look at the varietal, and then a lot of it's like intentional, like what are you gonna do with it? And you should know that when you get the sample, like you get four samples from the importers, you sample roast them, you cup them, you should have an idea of what you're gonna do with it before you even buy it, I would hope. But when you get it and it's just a blank slate, at this point we have roasting software, so we have a library with five years of coffees. So when we get something and it's, this one is a Nicaraguan washed, I can go back, I can look for something with similar varietal, similar intentionality with the roast, what we're gonna do with it. We can look at the, all the other metrics, the moisture and density, and then we just do one, just send it. Like It's not so important that you nail it on the first one. What's important is you roast it, and then you cup it, evaluate it, and then you come up with an idea for how you're gonna improve it, then you roast it again, and then you evaluate it, and that process continues forever and ever and ever, and it never ends. <laughs> so that's kind of sort of how you learn what the roaster does, it's how, what you learn like what the coffees do, you learn like how it's translated, what you're doing with the roaster, it's the entire thing, basically. But we're lucky because we've been using the same roaster and the same software for five years, so we have a pretty good idea of what, where to start. But the important part is that you're constantly roasting and going back and evaluating it as you go. I think you nailed it. But yeah, that feedback loop, I'll just kind of add on that. Yeah, tasting, and then getting to know what, what parts of the roast add different kinds of either tactile feelings or emphasize different kind of flavors. Or, sorry, even, or even take away. At or that. take away. Yeah, if you're looking, you know, there can be negatives that you know, like if you do this, that, can, that kind of flavor can come through. So just knowing that really intimately with your roaster, so, you know, at this degree, you know, something like this can, can show up, come up, you know, a different degree here. Or if I get to like a certain phase too quickly, sometimes this kind of flavor can, can show up. Really just kind of logging those things, I think, in your brain or taking note of them somewhere to where you have a lot of experience. So when you cup something that you just roasted after you've done what Randy said with the all the green specs kind of giving you an idea of how you want to approach it initially, that you can taste, if you taste something that you know, like the body on this coffee's way light, okay, I need to do, you know, this in the roast to bring up, you know, body, or this doesn't have enough sweetness, I know I need to do this, or I'm getting a weird bell pepper flavor, I know I need to do this to get make that go away. Just those like little specific things that you start to learn over years and years of roasting that can really help just for the profiling initially. And then I think everyone here has their own style of roasting. I think we're all roasting light, but you kind of have a, a style of coffee you try to represent for the most part. Most, most of the coffees I'm roasting are within a very close degree, and then they have you know a, just a flavor profile that I hope is distinguishable for me, and it's kind of how I like to approach coffees and kind of roast them. And I think all of us are kind of doing that. We all hopefully have our own style and, and ones that people will recognize out there. And you kind of roast to that to that general style that you've developed for yourself. So. Piggybacking off what Spencer just said again, talking about how all of you guys are fairly similar categorized as specialty like roast, but everybody has their own style. Can each of you describe what style or what flavor you try to present that represent your company and yourself and why you chose how you roast to that particular profile? 
I know for me, I'm, I'm, I never really thought about it this way, but I assume most of it happens with your green coffee selection, and I just love stone fruits. So when we're trying coffees, if something tastes like apricot or a peach or whatever, it just, I'll immediately send an email and be like, I want 20 bags. So yeah, and then as far as like, it has to be, if, if, you're, if you're doing that, if you're roasting and evaluating and continuing, like even if you make missteps during the roast, you're throwing those out. So I just think over time, whatever flavors you prefer are just gonna happen no matter what, as long as you're being somewhat methodical about your approach to roasting. So I don't think you can really help it. So I think when I first started, I was clueless, like we, we talked about earlier, but then as I started figuring out what I was doing, it was all about light roast, so extremely light roast. It was just like very tart. And then the older I get, the more I'm tired of like my stomach hurting or the more I'm tired of like tasting cereal. So like we've definitely gotten quite a bit more developed over the past six years, but I think the whole specialty industry has. So I think we sort of just have been in line in line with the rest of the industry. Yeah, I would say, you, I don't think you really go out there and you like pick a style. I think you just end up certain roasting coffees that you like to taste. So I think each person who becomes a head roaster or is running a roasting program and doing the green vines, if you have that combination, you're just kind of getting coffees that you like and then you're roasting them the way that you like to taste. There is at some point where, you know, you can make a coffee that's too extreme, I guess, and that's where you, you know, maybe you, you, you think of the customers a little bit more and you maybe bring those back into a realm that are more acceptable, even if you liked it, you know, that way. Or I guess a better question would be, what do you guys like to drink? And yeah. What do you prefer to drink? Yeah. Uh, Randy kind of answered that with the stone soup and whatnot. But yeah, instead of just like letting, because I think all of us kind of buy coffee and try to showcase it, mm -hmm. but we all have a little bit of a different mindset of what we personally like, and usually that kind of shows in the rose. Yeah, I like, think it's a big problem is when we drink so much coffee, we want to be challenged, so it's hard not to buy those coffees. Yeah, to be yeah. constantly challenged. Yeah. You know, sometimes you just got to buy the crowd pleaser, or it'd be the smarter business decision to buy the crowd pleaser. Yeah, yeah, I think for me, flavor profiles that I like tend to be clarity focused, complex, bright, acidity focused coffees, or just intense, fruit, sweet. You kind of develop a lot of, I think, a lot of different profiles that you end up enjoying. And then coffees that are just completely unique tend to be ones that I like these days. So, you know, you, you, you drink enough huge fruity naturals over a period of time, and then you just kind of want to buy, you know, more washed coffees, like I was saying, Earlier, you want kind of acidity focused again. You want florals. You want complete. You want lighter bodies. So you kind of go through phases. Obviously, if you're green buying for a business, you're also trying to have you know multiple profiles. And I think as a as most roasters, you kind of enjoy multiple different styles of coffees, and you can find coffees within each of those. But I think in general, I, for my the style that I like to taste is distinguishable flavors, clarity and complexity driven. So as much as much of that as you can get, usually is better for me. So that's, that's a tough question. I feel do like you, I've... Do you feel like you're still figuring it out a little bit? Yeah. Or if I'm not sure there is a figure it out, I don't know. But I've shifted a lot. Gone, I've gone through phases of really loving natural anaerobic processed coffees or even just washed, like a carbonic maceration processed coffee or different varieties. I think right at this moment, I think I'm I'm really into a very high-grown washed coffees that are loaded with sugar and acids, and but are really, for instance, like really 
obviously Panamanian or really obviously Colombian or those for me and if they I think clarity is a good word if, if they're like really clear I'm just becoming more intrigued with those currently right now just because that's just what I'm interested in right now, I guess. But generally, if I like, if I'm tasting a coffee on my palate in a way that like Randy is more like peachy and stone fruity, I would say I'm less on like the the note that I'm drawn to. I'm drawn to like kind of just a lot of complexity, but I think when I put a coffee on my mouth and it feels almost juicy and sort of mouth-watering and has this mouth feel that maybe is a bit buttery or creamy. I don't know. I, I would just, I same thing with what he said is like, yeah, I'll take the whole lot. Like <laughs> I want all this coffee, but, and, and that might be described as acidity or something like that, like a juicy acidity or something like that. But that's more what I'm looking for. Something that feels dynamic, effervescent on my palate and whatever that presents as it's usually going to be fruit, but I like citrus a lot in, in coffee. I like, yeah, most fruit notes. I would say I'm drawn particularly to red fruits and coffee. I just like a nice juicy cherry note or blackberry or something, but yeah. For me, I, I think it's still something I'm definitely trying to figure out. You know, we get stuff in and we try it and it's just, it's all new to me. So still trying to figure it out. With that said though, anything that's got like the fruity kind of sweet note, slightly acidic for me, it, it's all right. But yeah, just mostly, again, still just trying to figure out where my palate's going and, and trying to to build all of that. For me, we we have a database of roast profiles in, in the computer at this point over the years. And, and we just kind of look what region, what, what process it is, and kind of just pick one that we kind of know that we've messed with in previous years. We try to work with the same farms over and over every year, if not every other year. But we'll, we'll lock that on. But I think to, to answer your question, like how I got to my profiles was and I don't really do it much anymore these days unless there's a interesting coffee that comes through. But I will go ahead and take the roast pretty far and I'll pull, as it's cracking, I'll pull every 15 seconds out and I'll pull just enough to cup each every 15 seconds. And we'll, I'll take it up to, I mean, the roast itself and crack into like three, three and a half minutes. But you, you can pull every 15 minutes to understand like where you want to be with your coffees and just let it let it cruise let it ride not too fast you want to keep an eye on it but and then just lay them all out on the table and you'll understand what's green and what's dark and what's in between and where you want to be with it i think that's a good start and then just write down your numbers as you're pulling temperature and time and that's kind of like where i started getting my profiles that I wanted. Do you, do you find that translates to flavor? So let's say you pulled a, a sample at one minute in at 15% DTR, this temperature, yeah. and then you took the profile to that temperature that you got that little sample from. Does the flavor profile match up with that since the cooling rates would be different? It's, it's, yeah, it's different on how, yeah, it really depends on like even in your, in your drop, your temperature on that too. I mean, yeah. you really just kind of play around with them, but I usually just do one batch and then run it that way. But yeah, I mean, it, it could be. Kind of gives you a general yeah. area of where to aim for, but not like an exact, right? Yeah, yeah it's not exact. More towards coffees with that experience outside of the, you know, fruit bombs that I definitely enjoy, but I think body and aftertaste for me are something I also enjoy. Same question for you, Kim. How would you describe your style? Random. I feel like the second that you really have, this is like with brewing also, the second you feel like you're onto something, you're already moving on to something else. I feel like this industry is like always trying to catch up to something. I like the next thing and 
I never just want to stand still. Sometimes I feel like my roasts tend to be way too freaking light. Sometimes I'm just like, oh man, I overcompensate way too much and bring it way more developed than I personally would like. But it kind of just really depends on the time of the year for me, I guess. Winter time, I tend to push a lot more chocolatey, caramelly notes just because just the outside feel makes you want to drink something a little bit more comforting. Then, especially here in Arizona, summertime, really pushing for something way more acidic than it really should because you want something kind of like nice and reminds you fresh. And I think that's more where I kind of tend to lean in seasonality of the weather. Same thing with like beer. I like something darker and heavier in the winter time. I like something lighter and brighter. Cool. Any other questions? What are like some stigmas or cliches in roasters with this, whether it's like love from a region, not that you try challenging, or something which if at all? I had one for you. I do not like it when people talk shit on Brazilian coffees. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I know that that's predominantly what Peixota does, but um, yeah. we're talking about a product that people fucking like spend their whole lives on and it's, it's just very like yeah i don't really care for that i think that's that's something i that i find is the most exciting part about being a roaster is that you get to continuously challenge stigmas and that's sometimes the best coffees ever when you can get a coffee from a specific area in the world whether that is brazil or say the other ones, Mexico, Indonesia, all these kind of places that have constantly had bad stigmas for whatever reason, because they're huge countries usually and they produce a ton of different coffees and maybe a lot of those coffees aren't very good. But that doesn't mean like the whole country is just, you know, obviously bad. No good coffees can come from these areas. So I think, I think as, as roasters, you're constantly trying to do that. And that's sometimes the best coffees you ever roast, even if they're not necessarily the highest quality level in general, when you get a coffee from Brazil or Mexico or Indonesia or one of these countries, China, Kimok does a lot of cool Asian country coffees that are amazing. When you can get one of those and it's, you know, it's a great coffee and it's fun. I think that's, that's really the best, some of the best experiences for customers and for roasters to break those those stigmas in general. Brazil obviously gets a huge, uh, hugely bad rap and it's because it's, you know, it's the biggest producing country in the world and it, is it second? Is Vietnam bigger? Oh, the Robusta, biggest Arabica maybe? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, so yeah, it's a, I mean, it's the biggest thing or second biggest thing in the, in the world. You're going to have a lot of bad coffee. I mean, specialty coffee is supposed to be the top coffees. So when you're any producing country produces so much coffee, you know, 99% of that's probably not going to be very good. But yeah, we, the, the stigmas are, are, are interesting because I think specialty coffee's specialty, you know, everything that we're bringing in is, is high quality in one way or another. And yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't get those. So I think that's, that's a lot of what being a roaster is all about is, is challenging stigmas in general. I think age of a roast date is a stigma that we fight all the time, you know, customers coming in they want coffee roasted that day or like the day before you know and it's like you go to a grocery store and that coffee is three months out you know or not having a roast date at all so I think you know it's a it's a good reference point but I think you know this is still a product that we're really proud of and a lot of the times you know I know we serve coffees on our bars that taste amazing two or three weeks out so you know I think challenging the idea of freshness from the roast date is something that I think, you know, we can't look at a coffee as expired, right? Like just because we pull it off the shelf doesn't mean we're not brewing it and that it doesn't taste great. 
Yeah, I think that you uh, you might have even competed with some pretty aged out coffees at different points. A month points. off roast. Yeah, yeah, and did pretty well, huh? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a that's actually a really bad stigma now because there's been a lot of innovation with storing coffees in general. I know many uh, roasters, in, including us, are starting to nitro flush coffees, and we've cupped coffees that have been nitro flush out past a year that tastes amazing. Just last month, we threw something on the table that had been sitting nitro flushed on the on the shelf for yeah. I mean, it was I, it must have been eight eight months at least off roast, and it was the best thing on the table. So this, that's a really hard stigma if you're, if you're actually doing a lot of these, which a lot of roasters are now nitro flushing. And even if, even if you're not, if you have a sealed bag that has pushed all the oxygen out because of the CO2 that's been released in the coffee in general, that, that bag's, if as long as it stays sealed, is going to hold up for a long time. And I think this actually, if that, was a, if that stigma got removed, there would be a lot of relief and a lot less waste in, in roasting in general. Because a lot of these coffees, even, even if they get a, a little bit stale, still are pretty great. So I think that's, like, that is, that's a pretty big stigma that can be. They'll obsess over the age of the coffee, but not swap out the burrs on their espresso grinder. Yeah, yeah there's a like lot that. of like, <laughs> low-hanging fruit, definitely. So that's a tough one. Yeah, for sure. Way better. Yeah. You mean after roast or green? Okay. Kind totally. Of both. A lot of balance after it sits and just rests. Yeah. Yeah. Complexity and clarity go way up when you when you let those things age out for the most part. So yeah, for sure. I I just add washed coffee to that too. We just threw a Congo on. That's a pretty light roasted Congo from. Blair hooked us up with that, and we put it on drip 50 days out, and it was the best that coffee's ever tasted by a long shot. So I would just say play around with it. But there's good articles if you if you're really interested in reading about that. There's a roaster out of Denmark called La Cabra, and on their Instagram page, on their bio, they have a little link to a blog that they wrote all about drinking a like resting coffee basically. Theirs is more I think around specifically washed coffees, really really dense washed coffees, and they roast pretty light so I think it has to do with their roasting style and stuff like that but it's a great read yeah I think on that they they age all their espresso out a month before it even gets to the cafe and they're always pulling coffees at at least a month off you can correct me yeah you're gonna extract the coffee with better that's gonna taste much better yeah acidity is probably gonna be a little lower on some of the super light coffees and the complexity will way off yeah yeah do you know if they're nitrogen flushing and also doing they, that? They are, yeah. Well, and the month? I'm not sure if they, yeah, if they have the coffee's nitro flush that they do for a month, but I know they have it. I think they do because they send them their five pound bags and they don't want to touch it. So, yeah. All right. Any other questions from you guys? Oh, we got three. Someone pick. Who was up first? Okay. So, you guys were talking about stick with coffee, but obviously it gets a bad, for good reason, right? Are there things that you guys have found that are really that is a great question and i have not had one that i personally enjoy but that, that really comes down to your own flavor profile that you like as a as a customer so i know another roaster friend of ours paul at infusion stands by specialty robusta so it's a different kind of grade you know the robusta gets graded in, in its own section basically it's not in the same as arabica and so you can have specialty grade from booster coffees that are above 80 points and they get graded the same way and he stands by a lot of those he's had us try a lot of them and they're interesting not my flavor profile but i, I don't say they're bad necessarily it's bitter taste of bitterness yeah yeah for sure but I, i've actually always thought it would be extremely interesting for a robusta coffee to go through 
some anaerobic processing, extended fermentations, really try to get that stuff up there and really see what that does to it. I mean, it would be an amazing thing for the sustainability of coffee if they could figure out how to make good flavor profiles for Robustas because, you know, a lot of Arabica is uh, in danger from, yeah, we might have to go there, right? Yeah, I don't see anyone trying that hard. I would love to see someone, a producer that actually tries to make high quality Robusta and I would be interested to taste it, but um, I, yeah. I, I almost thought that there was something happening with people grafting Arabica onto Robusta. Is that not? No, I think, yeah, but it would still taste like Arabica, right? It would just have the, yeah. it would have the root system and the robustness of Robusta, but you'd still get good flavor from that on that. So that's, yeah, that's something that's happening that could be, that could help for the sustainability part for sure. I can, I can only speak from, I've had a couple of people come to our shop with samples of like what they consider to be like life-changing Robusta. And I was like, okay, like I'm ready to believe. And it just didn't taste good. So I was like, if this is the best I can get, I, I don't know if it's the best I can get, but yeah, I, I still am not there. You mentioned early on about some other challenges that you guys are the price with inflation, with the financial challenges that you're just facing. What are you guys doing to buy things? What adaptations are you making to, to just better navigate? I mean, a lot of the navigation's kind of out of our hands. It's shipping in general. You know, it's, 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 it's hard because it's the cost of copy itself and coming from the farms itself. I don't know, it, it's, I, you know, I have like relationships with some farmers and they're still doing what they need and their their cost at in the farms itself that are going up. There's cost of the gas of equipment or cost of fertilizers or that's all going up on their end. So if that's why coffee is going up. What can we do to control it right now? I mean, it's inflation. <laughs> I, I can't control that, but but I'm still. We also have global warming, which is kind of like there is sporadic rainfalls through the past few years in some of these, even Central America and South America, and it's changing harvest to be faster now, and it's all of a sudden. And then some people, I mean, I've seen Costa Rica have two harvests for the year, which is kind of unreal. It's usually one harvest. The only people who do two harvests is that guy down there. But South, South America does two harvest, but it's starting to happen in Central now. But with quality, I mean, you just kind of have to stay on top of them. And if not, it's hard through COVID because I haven't been able to get to the farm since COVID. So to communicate with them, it's usually Instagram, WhatsApp, just seeing how the harvest is going. It's a lot of talking. But I think my goal is to get them what they want, meaning our, our prices are going to go up and I can't really control that. But if the farmers need this price, I'm not there to negotiate that price. And they know that's, I mean, example, Donnelly, I, I work pretty tight with them. And they, I mean, their coffees went up another dollar this year. But I mean, they tell me what's all gone up and why, and I can't control that. But we're just kind of, I mean, it, Blair and I, we've been looking for quite a while on, we cup a lot of coffees that come in. There must be two or three bags a week that come in with coffees that, that we need a cup. And we still like to keep a low price point on some items that for our everyday customer, but we want to have something unique and awesome for them, but also it's $50 a pound. So that's a hard balance. It's really like to find those profiles, first of all, that we are looking for the lower end to meet to our flavor profile, but also to find that 
the prices are going to be low enough for the everyday coffee drinker that wants a bag every week. I don't, I don't know if I explained it at all, but it, it's, it's, it's hard for us right now because we've got to stick it to the consumer. Yeah, what he's trying to say is there's nothing we can do. Try not to negotiate the price, pay them what they deserve. But the only way we can do that is our price and hope everybody that are our customer understand that it just gotta happen. Since you guys still trying to nurture that relationship with this or the yeah. yeah. And whatever they're asking for, you guys are committed to that, we'll make a change. I think most of us yeah. just have to. Yeah. If we want to keep our quality the way we have it, we just there's no way around it. Plus we just go and be like, I don't care, we'll buy the cheapest stuff, we'll keep our prices the same, but we no longer want to be Yeah, I don't know what it's like for other roasters here. Do, do way more volume than we do at Moxie, but like I don't have negotiating power. Like I don't I, I've never really tried, but like I imagine I wouldn't really have the power to go and be like, hey, I can't pay this. I need to pay four twenty five. Like ever since we started buying coffee, like coffee's been flying. I, it's hard enough for me to like even lock down a coffee, more or less negotiate on price or try to beat somebody down on price. Like I I've never done that, and it, right now coffee's selling so rapidly that it's just like. I'll be lucky if I cup if I get a sample of a Kenya on Friday, roast it and cup it as fast as I possibly can and call that importer or call that grower and be like, hey, I want like eight bags of that, I'll be lucky if it's there. So it's it it, it is selling really fast. So I don't know how long or sustainable that is, because I've never experienced that before. Twenty twenty or twenty twenty one. Not to that extent at least. I hadn't experienced that, so it was a little weird, but yeah. But I would say one of the interesting things that I would say about that for us in particular is that I think that problem exists for us because I'm we're buying like pretty exclusively micro lots. So like the Guatemala that we bring in for our espresso is from a place that I visited in 2017 and really like their coffees and just love their pro like I just love the I love the terroir and I love the the flavor of that region. Just love it. So we when we go and purchase the coffee from that region or whatever, I'm not buying that big of quantity, but I am I am buying that out in advance and sampling out some of their best micro lots. And then they also have like for instance a bulk community lot that you could purchase from that's bigger, a little bit cheaper, like let's say 40 cents cheaper per pound or something. That's like the best of the community lot, but they all kind of collect them into. So there's there's ways without having to negotiate necessarily on price that you can just go another route and find coffees that are a little cheaper. So for me, if I was going to try to like, you know, try to slam somebody down on the on the price of those micro lots, like it just wouldn't work. They'd just be like, go buy this. Like this, no, dude. I think you know. I'm in a unique situation. I also sell green coffee part-time. And so, you know, I think people are looking around for different origins that might not be priced out. So, you know, a good example is, you know, I always used to call washed Ethiopia's the poor man's geisha because you can get them at a good price and it's sometimes they're really exceptional, you know, but we kind of have to start treating those washed Ethiopia's like on the same level now because they're going up in price so frequently. But, you know, even like the components maybe in our blend that we're used to keeping at a certain price that we have to for say espresso or you know drip coffee etc those prices are going up and the quality is just not you know so it's kind of like you know a balancing act of you know if you're going to be paying maybe five six dollars for a coffee that maybe that was your starting price point for 
a single origin now has to be your blend. So you're going to have to start looking towards maybe some of the up and coming emerging origins to kind of get a price point and a quality level that maybe your customers are used to. So I think kind of getting creative is one of the only ways in your purchasing power that you can navigate those costs because you can't really have like a, you know, four, four or $5 cappuccino and your green cost is $7. You know, it just doesn't really, but also everything else is going up, you know, milk, like we said, shipping, you know, I think, you know, people are pretty tapped in, in terms of like what they can spend on a bag of coffee, which is kind of the scary thing. Yeah, that was good. That's so production man, right? But something I find is, you know, you're pretty much following the same profiles day in, day out. There's explore a little bit and kind of mess around and do some. Do you have any recommendations for like, or even just your own preference on roasters? Yeah, I, I think currently we use the, the bullet roaster and that's perfect for getting into it at home. But it acts a lot like a, a real drum roaster. It is a drum roaster. The only difference is that you're controlling the, the heat source through electrical rather than through a gas. You don't have to have a gas line at your house. It does, it will get pretty smoky, so ventilation is really important if you're not roasting outside. Roasting outside in Arizona is probably not a very good idea. I, I wouldn't recommend it. But yeah, just kind of, if you can get like an inline fan to put some ducting up over the, the exhaust vent and blow that out the door, and that really prevents the, you'll still get going to get some smoke, obviously, you know, when you open up the door, it's going to smoke, whatever. You're going to get all that regardless of where you're roasting at and what you're using to roast. But yeah, that's a, a fantastic one to start on. A lot of people start with a popcorn popper as well. Sweet Maria's has a really extensive like home roasting. Everything on there is about home roasting. So you can start with the popper. They just, I mean, what is that thing like um, six or eight months old? And it has like, a, it's a, literally a popcorn popper that they've made a controllable fan speed and um, temperature. It's pretty cool. I think they're right around 100 bucks. You can get started with that. The Bullet, I, I think they're right around 3,000 right now. So yeah, they, they keep going up in price. Inflation. Yeah, we just covered that. <laughs> but yeah, that's a really good one to get started on and it's it's a, a really good roaster. Their software, it's, it's uh, proprietary. You can use, if you're familiar with Artisan, you can use that on there as well. But it is a little bit more difficult to get set up. But yeah, I mean, anybody else have anything? The Hooky 500. The, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah just, I just did mine away. Check Sweet Maria's. I mean, very, very extensive. All about home roasting. Not all of the roasting would translate to the production roast, though. You're I mean, you're going to have to find, like, similarities between them for it to actually mean anything, I would guess. Yeah. I I think the Hookie 500, the thing that I've used that really translates the closest to production roast. Okay. Cool. Uh, just because it's a drum, it's on fire. You throw <laughs> fire on it and it stinks brown. Yeah. <laughs> that on the Hookie is that the gas is infinitely adjustable or? Dependent. Okay. No. Okay. With the bolt, there's only uh, nine steps of power. So, like, if you are trying with a big batch, you're not going to have the power to sustain that and get the, to hold it all through the roast. So, you have to kind of find the balance on that. Can we all agree not to buy a Buckeye Roaster? Whatever you have worked for you. Yeah, <laughs> sure. uh, fair enough. You find all the bad stuff and you work around it. I would say as far as um, translating roasts, like Randy said, you're, you're not really gonna be able to translate a profile one to the next roaster ever, really. But, but you can use a little roaster to explore flavor profiles that are possible for a coffee. So in that regard, I would probably go something super cheap 
And if you're really trying to just figure out like what this coffee can do potentially, a uh, little popcorn popper or something like that is a great way to just do a bunch of different styles of roast on that thing and just see what the different flavors that that coffee has potentially in it. And that way you can at least know when you go back to production whether you're kind of hitting its maximum potential or if you're actually taking away something in the roast itself. So I would say that's your best, the best thing you're going to get out of a, a little roaster, um, a home roaster. Cool. Anything else? Yeah. One more back here. So I'm, I'm pretty sure most of us here can agree that to learn. What's one of the biggest mistakes you guys done when it comes to sourcing specifically? Oh man, one of the biggest mistakes I've did I bought a I got a really good sample of a Congo and when I brought it in no matter what I did I could not get it to stop tasting like tomatoes no matter what I did and that one was really challenging that was very difficult coffee to serve we were joking about making like a put like mozzarella and do like a salad yeah yeah I think for green buying a lot of it's always over buying trying to predict a lot of these times I mean if you're if you're really working with producers at the farm level you're getting samples pre shipment samples which means they're they kind of pick a early selection and they try to process it in a general way that they're going to process that lot. And then they send you that as kind of an idea of what a lot might taste like. Um, but they haven't even finished the lot. They haven't done any of those. Um, so it's very far in the, in the past. So there's two things that can happen there. That pre-shipment sample ends up being a different kind of coffee when it actually arrives to you if you're buying off that, which happens a lot to people where the pre-shipment sample is amazing and then you get the real lot and it's not the same. And maybe the price point you paid was on something that was amazing. And then you have to find out a way to, to serve that coffee. And then secondly, you're, you're usually buying that maybe six months before you're gonna serve it with an idea of what maybe your volumes will be. And uh, a year like uh, 2020 or something can come in and all of a sudden your, your prediction for what you were gonna serve that year maybe goes down or maybe it went up and you'll underbought. There's all kinds of predicting how much you're gonna service. It's a really hard game. So if you overbuy, you can you know, get aged out coffee like we were talking about before where you know, it starts to get old and you have to figure out an outlet for that coffee, which is always hard because you, if you have a high quality bar, serving those coffees can be you know, a no-no because you're gonna uh, ruin your brand value if you try to do that. Um, but then you still have the coffee and you have to do something with it. And so I think that's a lot of the issues that um, roasters have is overbuying or just predicting their, their year forecast a little bit off or the samples just not turning out the way that they were hoping. So at least in my experience, those are the things. When you say waste, is it because the shop is overbuying coffees or is the barista using using up stuff on bar? Like where's the waste coming from? Yeah. Oh, so, so like the actual waste of the grounds itself. I, I've heard there's a, we, we haven't done this and I, I'm not 100% sure, but I believe talking to the people at Infusion, they have a person who'll come up and pick up uh, waste and they'd run like a big farm and they put them in like a barrel of some sort and this guy will just come and pick up the barrel and, and take it off. Uh, and then use it on its farm for both chaff and ground coffee. Chaff we just throw away, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe it could be used in a good way for that. But yeah, I I, I haven't followed up on that on that lead, but I know that's uh, that's something that can be done with it. So. I feel like chaff kind of balances the grounds. You know what I mean? Like I'm new to composting, but a lot of my compost that I was making in one section of my yard was like heavily shaded and like overly wet. And chaff was like actually a really good way to kind of like balance it out. 
Yeah. 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 So. That, that farm, they picked up the chaff. I guess they like the chaff for something on the farm as well. I don't know what they use it for, but he said that they would give them barrels of chaff and then used grounds, and they, he would use both at the farm. So. Oh, yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I mean, I feel like with milk, there's not really a good waste solution unless you're weighing your milk or you're training your baristas to kind of like only hit a certain point so that they don't waste as much. You know, there's a lot of waste that goes into like green coffee samples, you know, the grain pro bags, the burlap themselves. So, I mean, we try to, we, Curtis does a, what he calls a dirty tea blend with uh, the green samples. Do you want to? Tell them what it tell, is. Tell us the secret, Curtis. It's pretty sick. <laughs> you know, I, I acquire probably, I don't know, like 60 pounds of green samples yeah. through the year. And I'll, I'll just pull them out in the regions. So Africans to South Americans to Central Americans. So, and then we just, we just do a big roast and give them away. Nice. That's awesome. So, but on, on, on top of the, the, the farms itself, it's, it's, we, we, well, in the past, we're still trading out the buckets. Yeah, we have a few people that come through the stores, and we we have the Home Depot buckets with the lids, and they'll just trade it out. They'll give us the empty one, and but we have a couple buckets at this point because I think you wait till the end of the week to pick it up. But on top of it, like we work with a couple farms. I know the farm that Jess works at is Tucson Village Farms. It's through a cooperative through U of A. They come by and even sometimes grab chaff, although they haven't done it in the past year. We do have a person that occasionally picks up chaff. It does create like a cookie crisp, crisp on top of a, a planter. It, it'll hold in moisture over time. So once you get enough moisture to kind of like wet it down. But yeah, I mean, recycle bottles when we do have bottles. But getting hard. yeah, that's another thing. Arizona killed that. So. Yeah, they're using it for coverage. The home gardens, people will use it for either liner or for the farm, or for shade cover. But I think that's pretty much it. Any other questions from you guys? Sure, last one. Earlier about and stuff. I was curious because I have shops all over Australia. almost never do I, so I was curious. They're relatively new origins in general, and I think a lot of the, the major cities they follow those stigmas pretty heavy. Like uh, any anytime you're in a big city, it's it's it is harder to find a roaster that's kind of venturing out into the yeah. the different origins and wanting to to highlight that. It is also the hard if a lot of like established roasters like to have these um, long-standing relationships with their producers, and they've kind of created that in a time where maybe those countries weren't really established yet. And now, once you have like a good amount of those producers you work with, it's really hard to get in new producers because you've kind of filled out your year of coffees already pretty much every year because you, work, you try to work with the people you already have established a relationship with. So I think, I think that's probably a bit of the issue too is a lot of those guys have a lot of established relationships already and they, they probably have a hard time figuring it out. But yeah, I think there's, there's a little bit of both of that stigma and, and relationships. I think part of it too, there was like scandal with SEA cupping sheets and how they they tend to, what's the word, reward like North American or like English diets. So people, I guess the argument was if you're like from India, you grow up eat, like very, eating a bunch of spices, like even just like turmeric and some of the, that are very pungent and they have a completely different set of what, things that they, they enjoy consuming. 
So when you're in North America, you might get coffees that are very citrusy and stuff, but in India, they might want more Indonesians because they grow up eating much more pungent. So I think a lot of that is on diet too. So it's not that like Sumatra doesn't produce beautiful coffees, but when you're, when you're cupping 10 and three kind of tastes like dirt, you kind of just skip over them, unfortunately. But I think it's just, a lot of that could be diet and that's unfortunate, but it's kind of the way it is right now. I also feel like with a lot of the Asian country, at least, nobody was actually trying to sell specialty coffee. I think that's the biggest thing. So a lot of the farmers are pretty old school. They don't know anything about specialty coffee. They don't care about it. So all they know is they grow coffee, is an agricultural product. They throw it in a box. They ship it to most places going to be towards their government and the government will sell it. So just going to the, the sea market and things like that. But in places like, say, like Thailand, there's a few younger generation that are starting to actually open up collectives and things like that and is pushing specialty to these older farmers and showing them how to actually process coffee instead of just shipping it out to an unknown source that just pays them pennies for it, then make money for themselves. So there's a lot of these younger kind of people who wants to reamp the farm actually shows proper processing and show them that with proper processing and skipping over these third party people that are just trying to steal their money that they can sell more directly to roasters and things like that. Same thing with uh, Myanmar was kind of, but they're kind of going through like a pretty tricky situation too. Vietnam, they're kind of the same thing. They're a big movement of Robusta on specialty Robusta where again, a lot of the younger generation are coming in and be like, hey, skip the third party system, grow it yourself, process it yourself. You can make money, we can, but they're all about making money too. So they're essentially loaning them equipment, loaning and selling knowledge so they can make money. So the farmers can make money and not just give it to like the government who just pretty much take the money. Yeah, yeah every shop I did, I never see any for Vietnam or Also, some of them are exclusive to their country. Like they just won't sell it out of their country. Oh. China right now is kind of hard to get because a lot of it stays in China. Hong Kong is super difficult to get. I've been trying to get some. They have a couple of farms that does pretty nice stuff, but they won't sell outside the country. Okay. Cool. Yep. Any final thoughts from you? I just, I just want to say thanks. Yep. You know, thanks for having yeah. us out. Yep. Thanks, Kim. Thanks for including me. Cool, guys. Thanks for coming out. Huge shout out to Kim Hong for putting this on. He's the best. Thanks, Kim. Cool. That's it. Awesome. Again, thank you for everybody who came out. Thank you for all of the roaster who is here answering some questions. Thank you, Curtis and Blair, for driving far. pretty far to get here. Awesome. But I'm glad you finally made it to one of the events. <laughs> <laughs>